Hey guys, just wanted to give a little bit of an introduction before we get into this new episode. This is an, a brand new series we're trying out called End of the Bench, where I'm going to be bringing on, and Ryan in the future hopefully too, we'll be bringing on some of our close friends, uh, acquaintances, people that aren't necessarily household names or people you've heard of, but do have a really good insight and connection to sports that I'd love to explore. And we're going to touch on more broader topics as opposed to, hey, what's going on in the NBA playoffs this week? Well, if it's connecting to what we're talking about, great, but otherwise it's more general kind of themes, narratives and sports that have been over the years and kind of dissecting them in a more specific and nuanced way versus just saying, who do we think is going to win this week? So this first episode features my good friend Bradley Colebank, guy I work with at the Denver Broncos, had some really cool stories and vignettes about our time there working for a championship team. And I just think it's some really cool insights, some cool stuff to hear about. And I think each episode will kind of bring the same and there'll be a new guest each week. So I really hope you guys like it. And uh, yeah, so this is the first episode, End of the Bench 1. Talking sports as they report Back and forth from their home court They talk the sports if you're not sure They talk of sports and then talk more About all sports, east, west, south, north Ryan talks sports, Andrew retorts And short you'll hear as they both sort Through all the sports they both support The Walk-Ons Hey everyone and welcome to the Walk-Ons podcast This is Andrew Schuster speaking to you um, We're speaking to you on a new platform this week Introducing a new series called End of the Bench As I introduced in my introduction But the first person starting it off is my good friend and former co-worker with the Denver Broncos, the one, the only, Bradley Colebank. Hey, Andrew. Super excited to be here. Excited for what we what we got going. Excited to have you. And for, for obviously, this is the first episode, so everyone's not quite sure what this episode format's going to look like, as opposed to diving into the specific topics going on each week in sports, like Ryan and I do every Thursday or Friday. We're going to take a broader step back approach to sports and kind of talk about some some things that have been going on brewing over the years in sports that, you know, we can dive into a little bit more and, and really into the specifics of versus just touching on the specific or the, you know, briefly touching on it each week. So the first topic, which is very relevant to this week, but also relevant to sports the last 10 years is the rise of super teams in the NBA. And for those of you that aren't familiar, it's not the first time that there's ever been multiple all-stars on a team. I mean, obviously Michael and Scottie Pippen and, and Dennis Rodman were on the bulls in the, in the nineties, all those great Celtics teams, the bad boy Pistons, the Lakers, obviously, but really specifically starting around 2008, was there a proactive measure to get multiple all-stars on one team, starting with the formation of Boston's big three in 08 with KG Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, and then taken to an even higher level when LeBron teamed up with, D Wade and Chris Bosh in Miami in the infamous decision or famous decision. If you're a big LeBron guy. And ever since the balance of power in the NBA has really been dictated by these all-stars teaming up together to form super teams. And while there's been varied success with this approach, it doesn't look like super teams are going to stop anytime soon with Brooklyn's big three of Katie Kyrie Irving and James Harden looking poised to dominate the league. Once they can all three get healthy, because even though they lost the bucks, we can all pretty much say they would have ran away with it if all three were healthy and clicking together at the same time. So simply put, my first question, Bradley, is, is this good for the NBA? I mean, the, the super teams, they attract viewers and they, and they garner headlines. But is it really feasible for the NBA as a whole to have these three to four teams in, in super big markets drive all the interest while the other you know, 25, 26 teams don't really have a great shot of winning from the start? I mean, I think there are a lot of pros and cons to these super teams. And I mean, if we think about it, what's the realistic aspect that 
there's 30 equally good teams. You can look across any league outside NBA. You can look at NFL, MLB, whatever it is. There's no 30 teams or there's no equally distributed teams that are always going to be competitive and it's just going to be a fight to the brawl. So you got to think the only way that would ever really happen is if you did like a fancy draft and basically a snake draft and everyone's up for grabs, like current players. And the only time you're going to do that is in a video game. But when you think about these super teams, you got to think, all right, as strong as they are, typically they are top heavy. And you look at the teams like Brooklyn, you look at Boston in the past, Miami in the past. If one of those or even two of those stars get hurt, typically they start to crumble because they don't have that mindset of, hey, I'm next man up. You don't have that mindset of, you look at Atlanta this year, Phoenix. Even if you look at Denver, who when they lost Jamal, they kind of rallied behind the idea that, A, they had the MVP, but that mindset of the team is, it's next man up. So if someone goes down, we're stepping up, we're playing. When you have those super teams like Harden, Kyrie, um, KD, those people that are stepping up, that, that's way too much limelight and way too much pressure on them to kind of fill that void. And I think that's when they start to crumble and you saw with Brooklyn this year. Yeah, I mean, so I, I agree it's, it's impossible to have 30 equally competitive teams, but I'm just kind of concerned when, when you have these small market teams that just know from the start They'll realistically never have a chance at winning a title unless they just get the all-time miracle. I mean, we can speak from experience as Nuggets fans. The only reason where the Nuggets are even in contention is because they drafted a guy during a Taco Bell commercial and he turned into the league MVP. Because no one is going to go to the Denver Nuggets and be like, let's form a super team here at outright where they can go to Miami, then go to LA, then go to Boston. I mean, if you're the, like the Charlotte Hornets, if you're the Indiana Pacers, are you sitting here realistically going, I'm going to really become invested in the NBA when I know the chances of my team competing with these teams is kind of nil? Well, I think the difference is like these teams like Indiana, Charlotte, Denver, plenty of other teams, they're not just going to get these people to all come. Like Brooklyn, everyone went to Brooklyn. Miami, everyone went to Miami. Boston, they had peers, but like for the most part, they still had to trade like these smaller market or mid-market teams aren't just going to attract a super team. I think they kind of have to get lucky. They have to have at least one star, but especially now, especially looking at this year, you look at it. And if I'm a free agent going into this upcoming year and I'm looking, Hey, I want to win a ring. What can, what should I do? Should I go to the Lakers who, who knows what they're going to be next year? Like who knows how they kind of reorganize that structure or do I want to go to a Phoenix team, which is already proven that they can be successful already proven they can take down these some kind of juggernaut or high profile teams. And I could be that missing piece. So I think the mid market teams aren't going to kind of, as I mentioned, bring all three stars at once, but once they have that foundation, I think it's more likely now that people are going to maybe come and just be that final piece to these mid market teams and win a championship with them. Really? So, I mean, I think part of what you said is true. Like Phoenix, Denver, Milwaukee even are much more attractive free Asian destinations than they used to be. But I still feel like, like there's a reason every time a big major free agent comes into play, you know, right now the Knicks had a really competitive year that no one saw coming. So everyone's like, now the Knicks are in play to get the next super team. I mean, you, you hear chatter about Miami seemingly every year, regardless of how good they are. I just, I just think the, 
the marketing opportunities those cities afford, which unfortunately realistically does play into it, does give you an inherent disadvantage, even though, like you're saying, it's not as big of a disadvantage as it used to be. So I, I think it's, it's, it's just a kind of one of those where you have to luck into drafting a star before you can then have the potential to get the mid-market teams to get free agents, like you're saying. But, you know, yeah. you know what, what do you think? Well, I think part of the thing as well is you don't have to live for that team you play for. Like a lot of these people on kind of these superstar teams, like you look at Giannis, like he probably, I don't doubt he lives in the U.S. in the offseason to begin with. But like even Trey Young, like maybe he lives in Atlanta, but he could easily have a house in Florida, L.A. The team that you play for, I think it's more that we might get more TV exposure. We might be on those big games. But if next season, if Phoenix wins it all, they're going to get a ton of TV, like ESPN, TNT games, comparative to the Lakers who had a, at like almost half their games this year. So I don't think it's necessarily as much where the location is. I think it's a lot of, hey, I want to be on TV. I want my name out there. And then the sponsorships come from that. Not necessarily, I'm going to go to Miami. I'm automatically going to get a sponsorship. I'm going to get all these like endorsements. So I think you got to go to a good team now. And especially you look at some of these teams, like no one wanted to go to the Knicks forever because ownership, and the team itself was just in shambles and like you could go there and you could be in New York and you could never win. And then you just ruin your career, but they had a good year. They got lucky. Well, maybe not lucky. We'll see, I guess. But I think these smaller market teams, especially looking at this year, if one of them can win it outside of the Clippers who still aren't, I don't consider that top tier of just because they're the redhead stepchild to the Lakers. I think, I think we could see a lot of stars kind of choose maybe these mid-market teams. Well, so I, I agree with you, but I will also say this, being raised in Denver, living in Charlotte growing up, and then moving to LA, there really is an inherent difference in the amount of marketability you can have. So there's a reason why like every year we pinpoint these three or four markets as the cities that really are viable to make a super team. But you also raised a good point that we didn't talk about before we started the show, but I want to touch on is that you know, when you take it, these, these rising European stars, I mean, Giannis, Luka, Jokic, it seems like they're not as concerned about that global marketing ability as the more American-based stars. And I wonder if that's going to be a huge factor in the future of super teams, because Jokic already came out this year, said he never wants to play for a different team than Denver. I imagine Luka, unless the Dallas thing gets even more dysfunctional than it is now, could follow a similar path. Giannis obviously resigned in Milwaukee. I wonder if more and more European stars enter the fray and are superstars, if that is not going to matter, because they're not going to be as focused on, let me get to Miami, let me get to Boston. Do you think that's going to come into play at all? I mean, I think it goes beyond just the European stars. I think it goes on to this next generation of up-and-coming NBA players. You look at someone like Trey Young, and I could definitely be wrong in the future, but these young people like Jaw, Trey, Luca. Um, Giannis, Jokic, like you can name all these up young. You could look at Booker. He never requested a trade. He was just fine be staying put because he knew he trusted the process. Like these younger people, I think kind of like the idea that I run this franchise. Like everything's on me. I get the spotlight. When there's a game, it's not, hey, I'm sharing the spotlight. I'm sharing the court with this. It's, hey, you're coming to watch me play. And I think that's kind of the 
exciting thing about this is the super teams definitely are going to continue in the short run, but you never see them. You never see like all these veterans pairing up with a second year player. They're pairing up with like older veterans that want to win a couple more rings maybe before they go. But I don't know if I see Luca like reaching over and be like, Hey, Trey, like let's meet up in Miami. I think they kind of like the idea that look like I, this is my team. Like I get to run the show. Yeah. I like that. I, I think you raise a good point. It's kind of like the, the current generation making a direct response to the previous generation. And, you know, you talk about these young stars. The other thing too is, is I think more than ever, there's such a huge concentration of superstar talent in the league. It feels like almost every team has at least one all-star caliber player where it's almost like it's, it's impossible to really pick and choose which ones are really the top 30 players in the league. Cause you can look at teams like even Sacramento, De'Aaron Fox, all-star caliber player. The Charlotte Hornets have LaMelo. He's going to be an all-star caliber player. So it, it really is kind of looking to me like there is more top heavy talent available in the league than ever before. And that may change the nature of super teams because every team could boast really impactful players. And it doesn't make it so like whichever team LeBron is on, whichever team KD is on is automatically going to win that conference. Does that seem like that's checking out to you? No, and I agree. And I think part of the thing we got to think about it with super teams, and I, I almost think we're kind of to blame, maybe not us, but like these big like sports reporters is when we talk about players' legacy, we talk about championships. Like that's the, always the argument. People always debate LeBron, Jordan. People always say Jordan had six rings. So we constantly talk about to, ha- to leave a legacy in the league, you have to win championships. And be- if we do that, then players are like, as they start to age, if they don't have a championship, they're like, well, I need to go get one. And that's when they start pairing up. If you can almost turn the narrative or at least acknowledge that you don't have to win a championship to be great. Like you look at Barkley, Malone, Steve Nash. I mean, Chris Paul currently, like there's plenty of great players that never won. And maybe they're not going to, they're not fighting for that number one overall spot of all time. But part of the legacy is if we say you're not actually great unless you win a championship, that's what kind of causes people to form these super teams because they need that championship in order to write their name in the history books. That's a good point. That is a good point. You know, I think you're looking at it too right now with, like we said at the top, all these teams that aren't super teams are currently the final four left. Well, I guess you could argue the Clippers, but with Kawhi out, they are kind of more of a regular, Hey, we have one star and he's kind of leading the charge team. So I'm going to leave in this segment with one last question for you. And that's, you know, what do you see the future of the NBA in 10 years when it comes to these super teams? I personally think Brooklyn's going to go on a little bit of a run once they get healthy. But outside of that, I mean, those guys are all kind of closer to the end of their career than they are at the start. Where do you kind of see super teams in 10 years? Well, I'm going to, I'll throw out a bold prediction. I don't think the Brooklyn Nets win a championship at all. I think those three historically have always seemed to have injury issues that just kind of linger throughout the year. I just don't see it happening. But 10 years down the line, I think it's the most spread out. I think it's basically goes into the year and it's a 10-team race. Um, I'll, I'll step that back. I'm going to say eight teams. I think the NBA eventually kind of gets rid of the Eastern Western Conference and they just completely see it all together. And by doing that, I think it's going to even it out. 
And I think it's going to form like eight teams that are truly competitive each year that are going to fight for it. And then maybe there's that surprise team that kind of just has the grit that kind of surprises people and fights. But I don't think there's ever going to be once these kind of trickles out this current generation of LeBron, KD, all them. Once that they kind of retire, I think it, it, we won't see like a three headed beast anymore. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, I like your bold prediction. Let's see what happens. It's almost impossible to tell. I mean, when LeBron did this in 2010, 2011, and then lost the Mavericks, we had no way of knowing 10 years later, this is where we would be, that KD would be playing in Brooklyn after playing in Golden State. I mean, it's just, we're going to have to see what happens. And I'm sure this will not be the last time we talk about this topic. It's going to be re- relevant for years to come. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the NFL and how Mr. Colbank and I first met. Stay tuned. All right, and welcome back to the walk-ons. We just had that enthralling segment about super teams. And now we're going to lead into segment two, which I've titled A Tale of Two Interns. And that's because in 2013, the world changed forever. When Mr. Bradley Colbank and I were hired to be summer interns for the Denver Broncos training camp, being given the enviable tasks of lugging ice and sodas around, cleaning up after the players, and buying chewing dip for Matt Prater on a daily basis. And as cool as that was, that was my first job ever. It taught me a lot about what a professional football team actually looks like inside closed, behind closed doors. And I don't know, I'm speaking for myself, looking back at it now, was that what you expected the Denver Broncos to be like at that time? And, you know, my second question would be, what was the most surprising thing about working at an NFL facility that very few people may know actually goes on there? Oh, it, it's definitely not what I expected. So it was, de- it was a job that we had um, in high school over the summer. And when you, when I first thought of like, Hey, I'm going to work for the Broncos. I almost imagined like I would basically walk into the hall and they'd constantly be talking like trade talks or like strategy, all this like high end insider trading. It'd be like, Oh my gosh, like I'm going to ha- know all this information. All my friends are going to be so impressed. I might have to sign like a waiver saying I can't talk about it. And like, I get there and, no, basically like what we're doing, we're doing grunt work, just stuff that they could f- find a random person and they could do the job. It was I was nothing special, but like it's still working there and it's still walking around and, every, and like you see these like household names, these superstar athletes and still kind of jaw dropping a little, especially like being in high school, like, wow, like the, it's it's incredible. And then it like, it makes up for like the work that you're doing. Like you mentioned, we're bringing ice to these vendors. We're making sure they have soda to sell to the fans. And I've worked for the Broncos for a couple different ways. So we, I worked at the training camp and I also worked doing like marketing during in-game promotions, like, and everything. So I got like some cool experiences, but I think it kind of showed me that unless I'm like that GM, I don't know if I'd want to like kind of crawl my way up the ladder in, in the sports industry. Yeah, no, it was definitely very eye-opening. I mean, I love that job, especially just for some context. Uh, that summer was the year where the Broncos were like the AFC favorite, ended up going to the Super Bowl, then got their asses absolutely handed to them by Seattle. But no matter what, like Champ Bailey, Peyton Manning, Wes Welker, Demarius Thomas, I remember they did a Sports Illustrated shoot at the facility one day, and we had to like kind of block that off. I mean, it was really the who's who of the NFL at that time. But one of my biggest favorite things was, you'd go out to practice every day and the special teams guys 
were just dicking around for three hours on a daily basis. They were like running routes and then kicking the ball to each other. Like a quarterback was passing it. And it was just like, these guys are paid millions of dollars to just dick around all day. It truly was like eye opening that like we, the society cares so much about these guys and they're just a couple of dudes, like just enjoying life. (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. You, you look at like, everyone's like on the main field practicing all the fans are watching them. And then kind of like the corner on the side field, you see the special teams, the punters playing quarterback, the long snappers running routes while the kickers playing cornerback. And they don't like, they maybe punt it a couple times. They maybe kick a few field goals the whole day. And I always think like watching the game when they miss like a kind of chip shot field goal, I'm like, well, if you actually practice that, maybe you would have made it. Like, obviously, like, there's the pressure and everything, but the amount of times they truly actually kick the ball, like, for these special teams players, very little. Like, almost never. And it's 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 really, like, almost like a Blue Mountain State if you ever watch that show. Like, the dream is to be that backup quarterback or, like, that special teams. Like, you just, you just mess around. It's just the dream life. Yeah, especially because that was the season Matt Prater broke the longest field goal record. So, like, he was the best kicker in the league, and he didn't do anything at practice. Uh, my favorite story was when he'd come in almost every day and he would just, like, hand us a 50 and be like, go buy me dip, and you can keep the change. And it was just so surreal, like, this guy that is on your fantasy team, you see on SportsCenter. I know he's a kicker. He's not on SportsCenter that much, but still, like, that was so surreal. Um, what was your favorite story? Um, I know you've mentioned it to me. I know the story, but you know, tell the audience what's your what was your favorite story interacting with one of these guys? I mean, I got a, I got a couple ones that I, I still remember to the day. I still tell all the time. But I think one of them that really stands out for me is we I, we were just watching practice because when practice was going on, that's basically all we did. Like we didn't have too much to do, and all of a sudden, like all the power goes out in the building, and everyone's like, "Oh gosh, dang it!" And they're trying to figure it out, but. Champ Bailey like has to go to the bathroom and I get like a message on the walk talkie like hey Bradley meet at the locker room Champ Bailey needs you and I'm like Champ Champ Bailey needs me what and I'm like yeah absolutely I like sprint over there so I get to like the locker room and it's like dark you can barely see and he's like hey I need to go to the bathroom and I'm like oh, okay let me like pull out my phone and like use it as a flashlight so I'm like guiding him through the locker room, taking him to the urinal so he can go to the bathroom. And like, he, he probably would never think about this in his entire life. And like, I'm like, God, one of the highlights of my life is I got to shine my flashlight for Champ Bailey to take a piss. And it's kind of those like smaller stories that like you kind of take away and that make like that cool situation. It makes it what it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember I, I shared the story earlier on in the season on the on the original podcast about how Peyton made us almost clean up his kid's puke and we were like pumped about it. We were like, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, but the best story with Peyton involved you and it involved your comedic talents. So why don't you tell everyone the, the uh, your incredible stand-up uh, prowess? You know, so I'll kind of give the background of it is when people, when players get fan mail, usually like the fan mail goes right to them. And like, not to break any hearts out there, but like Payne Manning would get like those boxes full of fan mail. And like, there's a database for his fan mail. So if he signs something and sends it back, you go in this database. So he's not going to do it again, just to kind of prevent you from just harvesting them and selling it. 
but we're going through his fan mail and we're kind of like reading through it and he kind of like knows stuff that he wants to highlight so if it kind of hits certain criteria then it's like all right give it to him and he's sitting there with us going through the fan mail and like him and our boss adam at the time are kind of joking around and i'm like i don't know where this confidence came from but i'm like you know i gotta i got a joke and he's like oh gosh and this is like he's been on snl like people know of him as a funny guy i'm like this is how my career takes off so i'm like all right pain why'd the duck go to rehab and he's like why and i'm like because he was a quack addict and like he just died he like almost dies inside he gives like that and i'm like you didn't like that one all right all right i got one more i got one more and i'm like all right why'd the cookie go to the hospital and he's like why and i'm like because it felt crummy and he looks me dead in the eye and he's like that was fucking awful and at that moment I'm not even mad. I'm like, yeah, it is. But you still heard me tell two awful jokes that you could find on a Laffy Taffy rapper. Yeah, it was the, like to, to be there in person. It was like the everyone's spirit left the room because they died too. <laughs> Brad's jokes were just so bad. But yeah, it was so surreal to be around Peyton. And um, you know, the last thing I want to bring up to kind of tie it back to let's actually do some sports analysis is uh. You know, when we were there with Peyton, there was a tangible feeling in the facility that there were major expectations. And it went all the way from us, the lowest on the totem pole, to, you know, the CEO, Joe Ellis, John Elway, the GM. There just was a tangible feeling in the building, like, this is a Super Bowl team. And I feel like, not to get into specifics with the Broncos, but they've been terrible. They've had the quarterback carousel since. And one of the things that gets talked about is there's not that same level of expectations. And now, that you know, there's talk about Aaron Rodgers, maybe Deshaun Watson being traded to the team. Do you really think that is such an important thing to have is just that one guy in the building who generates expectations and kind of holds everyone accountable? Like that intangible thing does nothing to do with the amount of passing yards, you know, the touchdown thrown. It's just like his presence alone changed the dynamic of the team. Do you think that's what that was the case? Oh, it's it's night and day. So I've been there when before um, Manning was there and then once Manning got there and you can just feel kind of the flip of the switch like when Manning got there it was all right we we have our guy like we're we went from hey maybe we go a Nate maybe we're kind of that middle of the pack team maybe we push for a playoff spot to no like we could win it all and the idea that those players like that upper echelon of like players and that status is well I know what they're about. I have to kind of prove myself. I have to make them know that I'm the real deal as well. So practice is harder. Intensity is there. They still joke around, but they still know at the end of the day who that leadership is. And you look at it now, some of these teams that don't quite have that, it's they're shooting for maybe they go 500 or maybe they sneak into a, a the bottom seat of the kind of playoffs. But they don't have that mindset of we're showing up every day because we're going to be playing that last week of the season. And it just kind of totally changes the mindset. And it even affects like the employees there that aren't players. Like people just hustle quicker. They know because everything that they're doing helps the players and helps just small things that kind of add up. It just, it completely night and day. But how'd you feel like when you were there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt the same thing. It was like there was a certain level of professionalism to it that I don't think 
you have if it's Drew Locke or Teddy Bridgewater, even though I do nothing against those guys, but there's just different expectations. I remember our second day there, Adam, our boss, showed us a text he had sent to everyone on the team and a handful of the executives. Peyton said just outright, like, we're going to win the fucking Super Bowl this year. And this was coming off the heels of the disaster where they lost to the Ravens on the miracle at Mile High, you know, fail Mary, whatever you want to call it, where that team was by far the best team in the NFL that year, should have won the Super Bowl. And they, he was not having it. First day of training camp, he let everyone know, you know, everyone's going to be here and they're going to give it their all. We're going to win the fucking Super Bowl. And they almost did it. I mean, they got their asses kicked in the Super Bowl, but still to be one of the last two teams standing was, was incredible. And I think purely just him being there was raised everyone's expectations and really changed the entire dynamic of the franchise, something that has not been replicated since. Um, yeah. Are there any other thoughts you have on that, on, on being there and just, you know, kind of living the surreal life of having a job in the NFL? Yeah. So I got, I got one question that I'd like, like your opinion on. So when we were there, we were obviously watching practice. And one of the things like I always noticed, and especially when the practices were closed off to the fans, closed off to the media is what they were running, like what, what they kept doing. And I kept sawing or seeing them running red zone routes to Julius Thomas, just saying up plays for him. So every single fantasy league I did, I drafted him later in the, in the round. So the championships I won due to that, would you give that a little asterisk because there's insider trading or is that just the lay of the lamb? And going off that, we, you kind of hear about players joking around like when they're mic'd up, being like, hey, like I need you to get in there. Like I have you on my fantasy team. How do you feel about players having their own fantasy team? And if they do, are they required to have themselves on their team? You know, that's a good point. I think it is a little insider trading, but like, hey, I love it. I did the same thing. I remember watching Julius Thomas in practice and be like, who the hell is this dude? Him and CJ Anderson. And, you know, it showed that next year they both balled out. Julius, I think, had 10 touchdowns that season and was just a hoss for my fantasy team. Um, and then when it comes to players, I I would hope you would want yourself on your own team. I can't imagine, unless you, like, you get drafted before by someone else, then you're like, oh, I didn't even have the chance to draft myself. Other than that, like, what kind of NFL player are you if you're not drafting <laughs> yourself? I think you have to have the confidence to, to do that. And so, I don't know. But, yeah, totally surreal moment. You were there longer than I was, but even that summer I was there, it was one of the coolest experiences ever. And, you know, it was, it was one of those things you learned a lot and you really got a, a good feel of what it's like to be just in an NFL building, even if you're not upstairs making the trades and, you know, signing the contracts, but we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with one last segment, but you know, tail of two interns. It was a beautiful time. All right. And welcome back to the last segment. We're going to end it off with, you know, something that we've been doing on the regular shows more recently. And that's, we're going to do some soapboxes. And we're going to let Brad, as an unofficial walk-on, do his dude and dud of the week. So to start off, let's just get into it. Brad, Soapbox, what do you want to take? What's your hot take? All right. This is going against what a lot of the media has been saying, but I think Doc Rivers deserves more blame than Ben Simmons for their most recent collapse. So let me just clarify real quick. Ben Simmons definitely deserves a ton of blame. His poor play was awful. He was scared to shoot. He was scared to do pretty much everything. However, he was scared to shoot during the regular season. It was definitely exemplified and highlighted during the playoffs, but I want to talk about Doc Rivers for a second because Ben Simmons 
performance right now is overshadowing his inability to get it done in the playoffs. So just to clarify, and I'll give you some quick facts, Duck Rivers actually won coach of the year in the 1999-2000 season for going 500. All right. So then some four years later in it, when Orlando, he gets fired, he ends up in Boston. He creates the Boston three party with Danny Ainge and they win their first championship in that 2008, 2009 season. So they had the best roster back then. This first time that we've seen a, the kind of three headed monster, as we talked about created, and they still took 26 playoff games to get it done. The most of all time to actually win a championship, 26 games. So then he makes it to the finals one more time in his career with Boston and they lose the Lakers. And then he ends up getting trade to the Clippers. And he, that's when he had CP3, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, all of them in their prime. And he could never make the Western Conference Finals. So now he goes to Philly, another talented team. He doesn't make any adjustments as Atlanta keeps doing the same thing. He doesn't call any plays to help their stagnant offense get going. Their stagnant players figure it out. I just think all this hype for Philly and they just don't perform and all the blame has gone to Ben Simmons because he's the player. He's the easy target, but doc rivers historically, I think is just an overhyped coach that gets kind of brought up in coaching conversations because his, because of his whole high profile name. And I just want to defend Ben a little bit. I hope he gets out of Philly. I think that's best for him. Get some psychology help, like do whatever you need to do leave Philly behind, pretend it never happened, but don't let Doc Rivers off the hook here because he's just as to blame, but that's my soapbox for the week. Yeah, I think there's something there. I mean, obviously not only losing this playoffs in such glorious fashion, but he's lost huge series leads everywhere he's been, Orlando, Boston. He, I mean, I know the Boston one, there's not as specific of a detail, but obviously the Nuggets last year, and then this year, he there is a track record of him blowing series leads and losing in the playoffs when he clearly has a more superior team. My soapbox is something that happened a couple weeks ago that I didn't really get a chance to touch on, probably for the best because I'm very clearly going to have a biased take, but screw it, it's my time to talk. And that's to say, I think with Coach K retiring, the Duke brand will end as we know it. And I'm not saying Duke is going to be suddenly really bad or it's going to be one of the worst teams in basketball I'm not saying that at all, but what I'm saying is I don't think it will anymore be the biggest brand in college basketball, which I don't think it should be anyways to begin with, but for the, that's a different soapbox to be done later. So coach K has been extremely successful in his time at Duke. He's had five national championships. He's clearly on the Mount Rushmore of college coaches. You could argue he's the goat though. I think John Wooden has 10 championships or something that kind of matters. Um, but prior to his arrival, Duke was a middling program neither historically bad nor historically great. They had had a couple final fours, but never really a team that was clearly one of the teams that was like going to win the national championship. Whereas schools like UCLA, Kansas, Kentucky, UNC, you name them, they've all won national titles and done it under multiple coaches over different decades. And that tells me that Duke basketball really is Coach K. It's not as much a program. He's built a program, but the program is Coach K, whereas UNC, Kentucky, Kansas, UCLA each have their own identity outside of it. And I think that's why they've been so successful over a longer period of time. Now, it's entirely possible John Shire steps in. Duke is incredible. I look like the biggest idiot on the planet. I know that's possible, but I just want to see if they can replicate the success under another head coach 
which these other blue bloods have done and Duke hasn't really done. Granted, they haven't had the chance, but still I'm intrigued to see if this Duke basketball, this juggernaut team that is the biggest villain in college basketball will continue to exist without him being there. We're just going to have to see. Also Duke, your warm-up song cascade is the fucking dumbest warm-up song ever. It was the teenage girl's favorite song in 2005. It should not be the hype up song for a college basketball team, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so Bradley, obviously we do duds and, and dudes of the week. Give them to me. Who, who, who do you like this week? And who did you not like? Hey, real quick. Where'd you go to college? Oh yeah. I went to North Carolina for those oh. of you who don't know. Oh. However, you know, as I said at the top, it's, it's incredibly biased. All right. So excited to do my dudes and duds of the week. So I'll start out with the dude. My dude this week is John Rom. So for anyone that doesn't know, John just won the U.S. Open this past weekend. Um, but there's actually kind of a story behind it, which is really like just positive, super happy. So two weeks ago, he had a six-stroke lead going to the final day. So he's playing at this memorial tournament. He's clearly on track to win with a six-stroke lead, and he tests positive for COVID-19. So he, he has to kind of get out of the tournament. He can't play that final day. He loses the ability to win. He loses the purse money that all comes through it. And he comes back two weeks later and he wins the U S open, which is a much, much, much bigger tournament. And he, they're interviewing him afterwards. And just the attitude this guy came with, he says, I didn't blame anyone. I stayed positive. I realized things like this just happen. And it truly is just kind of the way that it is in life. Like you never know what's going to happen in life, some things just seem unfair. And the way he just kind of dealt with it, rolled with the punches, just kept his chin high, came into this tournament, won, like tip of the cap to him. Congrats. I was rooting for you the whole time. Really glad it kind of all worked out in the end. Yeah. Um, and then my dud. So this one isn't going to be anyone specific. I don't want to say any names, but it's going to be the people talking almost negatively about Carl Nazim. So Carl someone who could be a dude of the week himself. He recently came out as the first kind of active player that is gay. And some of these tweets that I saw on Twitter are these NCAA athletes or prof or ex pro athletes that are saying, this is why I always showered last, or this is why I always waited for everyone to leave the locker room because there are just some weird cats out there. And you just, I just can't be around that. And I just want to point out to those people, like, the world's changing. You got to change with it. Religion, beliefs aside, it's just ignorant. You can't be out there, especially as a current player, talking about teamwork, talking about how you want to go to war with these players, just to kind of asterisk it with only if you believe what I believe. And you can have your differentiating opinions, but at the end of the day, you like, you just can't do it. And I there are going to be repercussions for some of these people. And personally, I think they deserve it. I hope they learn. I hope they become more open-minded, but just seeing it, it, it really kind of crushed me. It was sad to see, but it is what it is. People are the way they are. So, but yep. And that's my duh of the week. No, certainly a good pick, but I will say it has been great to see an outpouring of support for Carl Nassib. He's the highest selling Jersey in the NFL right now. And then also with the John Rom thing, not only was he have to force the pull out before the last round, he was on national TV. You could see him grieving 
the announcement, which was really dumb on the PGA's part. But either way, like to, for him to you know have that fall and then to immediately come back when the U.S. Open and we saw both the fall and the rise was really great to see. So great, great picks for both. Now, before we go, I, I want to, you know, put you on the spot here, Brad, leave the audience with something before we leave to leave this, you know, new platform we're trying out, which is you you fucked up in front of Peyton with your joke telling. Can you come back eight years later and, you know, show the world oh, you really are. Fun? You know, I've had eight years to kind of plan for this moment, but you know what? All right. I'll give you kind of the best one I got. So this man's driving down the street and this cop's kind of just sitting there making, checking speeds, making sure no one's speeding. And all of a sudden he sees this car drive by and he sees like these penguins in the back seat. And the cop's like, wait, what the heck? And he pulls on the street, flips on his lights, pull the guy over. And he walks up to the car and knocks on the window. And he said, sir, why are there penguins in, in the back seat? And he's like, well, they're, they're just my penguins. He's like, no, no, no. You got to take these penguins to the zoo right away. And the guy's like, yes, yes, sir, officer. I'm so sorry. So the officer walks back to his car. The guy drives off. So the next day, the guy's in, the cops in the same spot, sees the same car drive by, and he sees the penguin sticking their head out in the back. And he's like, what the heck? Pulls him over again. He's like, sir, I thought I told you to take these penguins to the zoo. And the guy looks at the officer, and he's like, I did, officer. And we had so much fun. Today, we're going to the beach. Oh. <laughs> oh. I know. Okay. I'm sure everyone at home is having the same reaction I am. You, you uh, did not live up to the eight years of practice you've had. And uh, there's a reason Peyton is a spokesperson and you are not. But either way, love you coming out and being on the first episode of the series. Um, appreciate it, Brad. It was great having you. I loved all the takes. I loved the conversation. Um, for those of you that aren't Broncos fans, too bad you had to sit through that. But you know what? It was a great first episode. And that's it for the Walk-Ons Into the Bench Series, Episode 1. Thanks. <laughs> The walk-ons.